Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talus Group. In this episode of Defense 2020, I'll be speaking with four experts about great power competition. Michael Mazar, Senior Political Scientist at the RAND Corporation. Oriana Schuyler-Mastro, Assistant Professor of Security Studies at Georgetown and Resident Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. And Corey Shockey, Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Thanks to everybody for joining. We have in the room here today, Oriana and Chris and Mike, and we have Corey Shockey joining us by phone from London. All of you have been writing on the very topic we're going to talk about today, which is great power competition or strategic competition. These are terms that are very much in the discussion points inside the Washington security establishment and among allies. But I think there's probably a lot to break down in terms of whether those terms have meaning that's universal, whether there's differences of view on the terms themselves or their value. And so maybe, Oriana, we can just start with you and get your sense. Is this frame, great power competition, is it meaningful? Is it accurate? Should we be using it? So I think this is the best frame that we have right now. If you look historically, every time you have a situation like a rising power like China, and you have an established great power like the United States, the dynamics of that relationship are different every single time. The nature of power is different every single time. So what we have is this term that we use to describe when two countries have have amassed enough military, political, and economic power such that they can compete with one another. Usually it's globally or in key strategic areas. I would say it's difficult to explain the U.S.-China relationship that way only because we don't have that parity quite yet. You know, China, I think, is more of a rising power than a great power at this point. But I understand the individuals who decided to use this term, it was mainly to signal to the U.S. bureaucracy that the age of, you know, forever wars and counterterrorism and, you know, the United States focusing on security threats that might not be so existential is over. And we have to now think about trade-offs, prioritization of things that are more important, like dealing with the rise of China. And Mike, you and your team at RAND have written about this frame and its historical antecedents and also about, if you will, the complexity in the current environment. Do you think we're framing up our security challenges right right now? I think the, the term great power competition is is misleading in a lot of ways. I mean, I agree entirely that I think it's in some ways the best we have and it and it is symbolic of a shift to competition with major powers. But to me, the historic basis of this is in a world that's a much more of a free-for-all with multiple great powers all kind of facing off against one another and trying to develop a policy for that environment. And why that's misleading to me is that that's not the world that we have today, Uh, particularly the U.S.-China relationship, I think, is evolving under the shadow of this post-war order we put together where we have a lot of value-sharing democracies that we can work with. And to think in terms of great power competition, to me, misses 
the real structure of international politics now, which is not as it was in those earlier eras of great power competition. Even, you know, when we looked at even the word competition is used a million times in the IR literature, but it's very under-theorized in terms of what it actually means. I mean, I think it's a great point that every one of these cases is unique and contingent. So we should think in terms of a, a rising and increasingly intense competition across multiple areas with China, with kind of a revisionist Russia in the background, and treat it as it is and, and not worry so much about putting it underneath um, a concept. Yeah. Chris, your view. So in addition to the problem with competition that Mike highlighted, and again, what does this mean? The nature of this competition is likely to be different. I hope we get into that. I have two problems with it. First of all, I have a hard time sort of equating or lumping together Russia and China. Uh, China is a rising power. Russia is a declining power. Um, I, I struggled even to think of Russia as a great power with, with maybe one or two key exceptions well, that is thousands of nuclear weapons and UN Security Council permanent membership. So, you know, those are two big exceptions. But I think the, the differences between these two countries are so dramatic to lump them together as the national security strategy tries to do is a real problem. The other issue I have with, and, and I think we have to set the historical framework, I, I think it's important to see this as a different period from what we were coming out of, which is clearly a period of unipolarity or unchallenged primacy, right? Where there was not a major or even approaching peer competitor who was likely to bump up against the United States when we were doing lots of small brush fire wars in, you know, from Kosovo to even Iraq and Afghanistan. We didn't bump up against China and Russia in Iraq and Afghanistan until very recently. Now we're bumping up against uh, both the Chinese and the Russians when the United States is is exerting power um, in some of these uh, forever wars like we're talking about. Is there a framework that you prefer? International relations, um, the, which is to say the, na <laughs> the, the nature of international relations is a jockeying for position and power. And so we, we really should look back on the period from roughly 90 or 91 to pick a date, uh, maybe 2008, around the time of the financial crisis, uh, you know, a period of, of relative unchallenged American dominance uh, and, and, to, and to sort of delineate this as a different period, which is more like traditional international relations and, and not a unipolarity. So, Corey, you've written an entire book on this topic of transitioning across, I'll just call them great powers. From In your case, it was writing about Britain and the U.S. What do you think is the best way to characterize this debate we're having over whether it's U.S.-China relations, international relations in a context of a U.S.-China competition, and the role of Russia? So I, too, think great power competition isn't an ideal fit. It's plenty good enough for what we're trying to say, which is we're scared about a revanchist Russia and a rising aggressive authoritarian China. But I think it, it conflates two important elements of the problem. One is uh, the nature of countries strong enough and different enough, strong enough to be dangerous to us. And the second element of it is why we're actually afraid of those countries. And that has to do with normative issues. It has to do with issues of governance. We don't, we're not scared of a strong Germany. We're scared of a strong China or a strong Russia because of the nature of governance in those societies and the way domestic governance issues color their international behavior. So I think there's both a type of governance 
piece of what we're talking about when we talk about great power competition and also and oh god these countries are getting strong or like russia as chris pointed out it's not getting strong but it's got the necessary tools to do a lot of damage to us and a willingness to do so so what are some of the blind spots, if you think there are any, in having a very focused approach? So the good news, it sounds like, is that the U.S. is focusing its security attention, as Oriana put it, you know, has a framework in which it's driving attention to this issue in particular of U.S.-China competition. Mike, Chris, and Corey, you've pointed out some of these other ways in which the U.S. is trying to think through its security beyond the China piece. What might be some of those areas that we are underattending to or just need to make sure we're capturing? So I have a, a few ideas on this. I would say the great power competition framework is good because it describes to us maybe what these countries want. But I don't I think China wants to be dominant in their region. And I don't think they want to have that global dominance in a military sense. I think they think political and economic power is sufficient for them to be able to veto things that aren't in their favor and to have a degree of control over the future of those regions. But one of the main differences today than maybe the Cold War era is I see Asia as being the center of power in the world. So just like the United States or the Soviet Union felt like they had to control Europe to be a superpower, nowadays you have to control Asia to be a superpower. And so the concept lets us focus on the fact that China does have that ambition. But the big blind spot that I see, at least, for a lot of individuals who maybe focus on great power competition, but not China in particular, is they assume China wants what the United States has and that China is going to try to gain it the same way the United States has gained it. So one of the big problems has to do with how they have focused largely on political and economic power to date to leverage other countries. In the majority of the world, that's the type of power they use. They don't think foreign military intervention is a good tool of, uh, of power, and they don't have, at this point, plans to have a global military presence in the same way the United States does. Now, we're always looking for tools or keys of what their intentions are. And we're looking for things like overseas basing. You know, well, belt, one belt, one road will be significant when there's overseas basing. And it's significant now because that's not how China does things. And so one of my main concerns when we use some of these analogies, great power competition, uh, when you talk about World War II, the Cold War, you know, those states were very different in how they thought was the most effective means of accumulating power. So the United States didn't seek colonies after World War II. China's not going to seek the same type of global presence we have. And so I think we're kind of preparing for the wrong type of threats because yeah. we're preparing to deal with ourselves. So interesting. And you've written before about this as displacing rather than replacing the U.S. Is that what you mean? Exactly. Yeah, yeah I'd say, I mean, two things. One is I agree entirely that the great power competition frame harks back to eras where armies and political military power and Hans Morgenthau's concepts ruled the world. And that's not the main challenge we face today. A second thing is I think that by by calling forth this image of a bunch of independent conflictual countries to get to what Corey was saying, it, it, it causes us to downplay the greatest advantage I think a great power has ever had, which is the alignment of world politics that we've helped to put into place in the last 70 years. I mean, even apart from whether we believe in the significance of a rules-based order, if you just look at U.S formal alliances and the economic and military power behind them, not that everyone is going to fight against any potential threat, 
But broadly speaking, you have an alignment of world politics that is an enormous advantage for us, that mostly wants what we want and is certainly not going to come out in support of aggressive military action or even excessively coercive economic action by others. So to the extent that a great power competition frame causes us to think transactionally, bilaterally, unilaterally, um, it causes us to undermine our greatest competitive advantage. That's really well said. I, I want to echo that completely. I also want to come back to something Oriana said about prioritization. It's it was clear that that the, the national security strategy and the national defense strategy wanted to sort of emphasize this transition away from the forever wars, from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, into a different kind of competition against a, a rear, rising power and near peer. But in practical terms, that's not what has happened. In fact, even as the Trump administration claims to be prioritizing China above all else, you also have Trump administration officials sort of bending over backwards to reassure allies in Europe and in the Middle East that the United States presence and role in those regions is not diminishing at all. And again, the Obama administration experienced a similar similar problem when they attempted to pivot to Asia. So unless we are serious about prioritization, it doesn't matter what the documents say. We we, we actually need to follow through and we need to have a a strategic culture here in the United States that believes that we have to pick and choose, that we can't do everything in every part of the world in the same way that we could or thought we could when we were the only power in the world that mattered. You know, Corey, I want to invite you to comment on this stream, but also I wanted to flag that you've written before about the applicability, you know, roughly in defense of the applicability of the Cold War analogy is sort of roughly good enough for how we should be thinking about the U.S.-China competition. So love to hear your thoughts on that or any of the conversation. Sure. Uh, I agree with the challenges that Oriana raised initially about historical precedents of great power competition, and very strongly Chris's uh, concerns about it also very strongly resonated with me. But the Cold War analogy is useful in one way, which connects to my biggest concern about our blind spot, which is the militarization of the issue that it um, it seems to me that during the Cold War, we understood that military force could freeze the competition and channel it into economic and political and cultural and alliance um, directions in ways that we understood were advantageous to us, that that was playing to our strengths to take it out of sheer military um, direct engagement. And I worry that we're not thinking enough that way about China. And it's partly the framing of great power competition, which brings to mind the Napoleonic Wars. It's partly the fact that the Defense Department is so much better at planning than any other part of the American government is, that they're always far out ahead in implementation of the strategies. What I hope we will understand from any Cold War analogy or from the framing of great power competition is that we actually don't want this to be a military confrontation. And we, what we ought to be doing is thinking as creatively, as diabolically about the ways that we can influence Chinese government behavior uh, in the way we did during the Cold War. And let me just give you my very favorite example. The Obama administration's ambassador in Beijing, Governor Huntsman, 
posted on the embassy website the air quality index in Beijing. And it cost us no money to do that. It risked no confrontation with the Beijing government. Um, all it did was force the government of China into a accountability about something its own public cared about. And thinking creatively enough about that, not about how to get the Chinese government to agree to the rules that we have established in the international order, but to align uh, lines of operation such that they're forced into it by their own interests and their by their own needs. And we're not given nearly enough thought to that kind of small ball activity that is our comparative advantage with authoritarian societies. I just want to add, you know, I think the situation now between China and the United States is actually more difficult and more complicated than what existed between the United States and the Soviet Union for a number of reasons. Corey laid out a few of the key differences. And one I would like to add is that the United States doesn't have the advantage in the economic sphere. Right? That is a huge difference that if I agree that we don't want to over militarize this issue, but even if the United States does establish itself as the security partner of choice, which I think is a big uh, goal of our military strategy, that's not enough. Most countries in Southeast Asia might think of the United States as a security partner of choice, but still might lean towards China because of the economic power that's there, which brings up another point, which is China doesn't present the same threat to its neighbors in many ways that the Soviet Union did. Now, of course, there are territorial disputes. There is a likelihood of conflict. But China doesn't have plans to invade and occupy any of these countries. So we're not really looking at, you know, a Chinese presence in Japan that we have to defend against. And the last thing I'll say about this is, you know, on the military side, China has a local advantage. So Soviet Union and the United States, we were both trying to project power all over the world. And with that power projection and geography came many challenges. We face a China that doesn't have to have those challenges because they're fighting at home. So in a lot of ways, um, I think we need to shift the conversation a bit, not just be about United States and China. And Corey is absolutely correct about trying to shape some of Chinese behavior. But in my view, competition is about the rest of the world all the other countries in the world and how they perceive China, how they perceive the United States, and the United States ensuring that we are actually an attractive partner across the board. And I think because of the ideological differences, we like to believe that, of course, we are. Right? Of course, people would prefer to be partners with the United Mm -hmm. States than China. But in my experience in the region and around the world, uh, I think that's a lot of wishful thinking, and we have to work a little bit harder. And you think that's mainly due to the economic aspect? I used to think it was only the economic aspect. Now, this is uh, somewhat unformed, but recently I've been spending a lot of time with senior government officials from developing countries in South America and the Middle East. And their viewpoint is that the United States also engages in equally coercive behaviors so that there's not a huge difference for the majority of countries with uh, relying on China versus relying on the United States. The only difference is they don't have to deal with a lot of the political issues in terms of relying on China. And so I originally thought, of course, it would be better to partner with the United States. But now, more and more, I'm coming to realize that for other countries that assume they have to rely on someone, what's the difference between having Huawei deep in their country versus multinational corporations deep in their country? I mean, look, this is not a pleasant conversation for those of us who are living here in the United States and believe certain things about U.S. foreign policy. We talk about our comparative advantage, our comparative advantage being the attractiveness of our our cultural model, our economic model, uh, sort of being a, a model for others. 
But the fact is that we have uh, exhibited behavior that and, and, and practiced behavior that we have uh, said that others cannot engage in. So we are the ultimate hypocrites. Uh, the, the evidence of this is just sort of overwhelming. And, and so it does not surprise me, Oriana, it does not surprise me to hear this from others. Perhaps they're being a little more, bit more vocal for two reasons. One, because they do see an alternative in a way that they didn't see an alternative 15 or 20 years ago. Maybe it's a warning that we should listen to. It's a, maybe we, the United States, should actually adhere to the b values that we profess, um, and maybe then that we would be more attractive than we have been in recent years. So, Mike, we hear this from um, folks inside the Trump administration, but more broadly, there's this debate about whether what we're really talking about is more ideational, which is authoritarianism versus the free world, if you will, that there's a values competition underway. It sounds like in this conversation that everyone seems to believe there's at least an aspect of that. This is not pure structural elements of a rising China and a Russia trying to go out with a bang, but that there are these underlying aspects. Is that your thought as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, as I think everybody would agree, that it's very different from the Cold War. It's not a fundamentally ideological situation, and it's not one where the essence of each system implies or demands a fundamental change in the other system, which kind of gets to the interesting question of, you know, endgame of what do we define as success in a competition with another side that is not probably going away, and we cannot have the same vision in the Cold War of, you know, transcending their system. But... I, you know, I would say actually the last six months to a year have surprised me and have raised a question. And I think, you know, as not a China scholar, but they seem to be pretty good at learning lessons and backing off when they overstep. But they are making this into a more ideological competition than it was a year ago. And if they persist in that direction uh, with intervention in politics in other countries, obviously Hong Kong is an issue with uh, you know, lawsuits against various people, bribing people to run for uh, parliament in different countries. If they persist in that, uh, then I think you begin to have a more significant differentiation beginning to be on the, the level of the Cold War. But my hunch is that they're too smart to continue toppling down that hill. Um, so I think that in this sense, the fact that it's a competition against an authoritarian government is absolutely a significant part of it. It is not the dominant part as it was in the Cold War. Yeah, Corey, we've already touched a little bit on this issue, but love to hear your thoughts on what the U.S. response toolkit looks like. You talked about an over-militarization as a potential blind spot and the advantages of taking low-cost approaches in other sectors. What would hit your top list of areas where the U.S. ought to be investing more intellectual thought and dollars? So I agree with Oriana and Chris that the United States hypocrisy or failing to live to the standards that we establish is a huge way to damage our ability to win this contest. And I also agree with Mike's earlier point that our alliances are our comparative advantage, that we're able to play team sports in a way that the Chinese can't attract the same kind of cooperation. I think advancing the rule of law, we tend to focus very much on democracy promotion, but if you advance the rule of law, you will get most of what we want from democracy promotion without creating the anxieties of lots of countries about regime change. Rachel Bronson, uh, now at the um, 
Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, has long made this argument about the Middle East, and I think it's true not just for the Middle East, but more broadly, advancing the rule of law, helping people craft laws that are enforceable and just. Basically, everything that you would read in that magnificent 1958 novel, The Ugly American, which was about uh, what would fail and what would succeed as American foreign policy in Vietnam, it are things we should do. Help local business get started. Create opportunities and education. Uh, a lot of the stuff that NGOs do, we should also have a government fingerprint on, at least supporting and cheerleading those things, which costs us nothing and creates a vision of the kinds of societies that most people want for themselves. And where there are people who don't want those things, they tend to be corrupt and they tend to be in power. So it puts us on the right side of those arguments, both for our own values and for what we're trying to reinforce or where it doesn't exist, create internationally. Just focusing maybe on China for the moment, Chris, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you what your perspective is in terms of debates in the U.S. political foreign policy community across the political spectrum over how we should be thinking about a U.S.-China competition and how this might play out throughout this election cycle. So uh, my colleagues, uh, John Glazer and Trevor Thrall and I just finished a book and we, we settled on the, the disturbing conclusion that the one area of uh, emerging bi uh, bipartisanship is uh, China is the great enemy and shall define everything that we do for the next generation. Um, uh, and uh, we're, we're troubled by that because what we see, what we see is a, a tendency to sort of want to lump everything together in around this frame in the way the way the national security strategy is is, is trying to so pick an issue uh, industrial policy industrial planning how resources are allocated within the society the level of taxation the level of spending on domestic priorities all of these things can be advanced in the service of getting serious about competing with China. And it's the one area where you can find Democrats and Republicans actually agreeing with one another, whereas if you framed it in any other context, they would be opposed. Uh, there Again, there's a sort of, you know, among the Republicans, there is at least a lingering sort of anti-state or small state, but not really, because of course they just don't want to pay for the state that they they support. Um, and among Democrats, there is a traditional reluctance to sort of, sort of to be out-hawked by the Republicans, but they see this as an opportunity, I think, to push a domestic policy agenda as well, to, again, to sort of mobilize resources. So that's what really concerns me about this, uh, again, more as a domestic matter, a domestic political matter, than it does as a strategic matter. But the strategic danger is that we're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy, and we're not actually playing to our strengths. We've all talked about this today. What are U.S. What are the United States comparative advantages? What I worry about is that we are trading away those comparative advantages, and one of the other ways that we're doing so is, well, we need to be more like China in terms of the way they mobilize resources for major, um, uh, like Bolton, Belt and Road, you know, major infrastructure projects. We need to be more like the Chinese in terms of um, uh, mobilizing resources within the domestic economy. I say, no, actually, that's exactly what we should not do, because that's trading away our what, what actually will allow us to, I think, uh, emerge from this competition um, stronger than if we uh, if we just follow the Chinese Can model. you just um, walk through a couple of those areas where you think we can emerge stronger? Sure. I, I think that on rule of law, and I think we should we should define that quite specifically, 
Okay, um, from my uh, sort of ideological perspective, can't you know, candidly, I think things like property rights and human rights and individual liberty and the ability to speak, uh, you know, all, all of the sort of freedoms that we take for granted here in the United States, sort of advancing those in a in a in a non-coercive way as a, a model and not one that we're imposing on others, I do think that ultimately that would lead to it to uh, to us sort of emerging uh, stronger because I think it's more it is more attractive uh, than the alternative, which is a top-down authoritarian model and and state driven and and all the inefficiencies that the Soviet Union learned uh, to its uh, you know chagrin. So we're going to conclude around the table with a tough question, and I'm going to start with Mike. And that is, for the listener, help them think through how they should think about the U.S. approach right now in great power competition and the state of the international environment using any pop culture reference you choose. So what came to my mind was something that doesn't exist yet but should, which is a Black Mirror episode where the main character is looking at a world that existed 20 years ago, but they don't know that they're looking at a world that is 20 years old. And they're interacting with the world as if it still existed 20 years ago. And everybody around them is wondering why they are behaving so oddly, because they just can't see the world as it is. Great. Oriana. So I would go with uh, Beyonce's song, The Best Thing I Never Had, uh, because I think we talk a lot about great power competition. And at the highest levels of our government, they will say that this is a priority. But as someone who also has the pleasure of working at our lower levels of government, I don't see it. Obviously, I'm here in my civilian capacity speaking on behalf of only myself, but I'm currently in my military PME because I was just promoted. And I have 18 months in which China does not come up so far. I just did a module on national security threats in which I had to spend the whole weekend looking at Somalia, Venezuela, and Afghanistan. They cover every region of the world but East Asia. And so we have a whole military force that, sure, our generals might be at the Pentagon worrying about China, but the rest of the military is still thinking about Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and there are no parallels between those conflicts. So it concerns me that even though we have to focus on norms and all these other things, we have to have a basic deterrent in place. And unless our military gets its act together, we're not going to have that. Great. Chris? So my pop culture reference uh, is the, the one of the only movies that I've actually seen more than once in the movie theater, and that's Avengers Endgame. Um, but it's in a different context. Uh, I suspected... Uh, I did research today, people. Uh, I suspected that the hall uh, for Avengers Endgame, which is the top grossing film in history, again, not inflation adjusted, I suspected that uh, sales in China might have contributed to a considerable share of this, and I was correct. Um, so of the 2.79 billion dollars in uh, box office receipts, um, 1.9 billion of that was outside of North America, and 629 million dollars was spent by Chinese consumers of Avengers Endgame. That gets to the point that this competition that we're talking about is so fundamentally different than the Cold War competition because no Soviet citizens were watching American films and no Americans were watching Soviet films. So I'm being sort of glib here because, well, you know, I like this movie, but it tells us something about the future that we are in today. This is not this is not the future. This is the here and now. Uh, and I, I don't think we should want to unwind ourselves from that kind of uh, uh, 
uh, economic relationship, and uh, and so I just wanted to I wanted to give an, give an excuse to myself to research uh, more <laughs> about this uh, film that I research saw. the box yes, office findings. Correct, Corey. You get to take us out, and and are you gonna? I'm curious to know whether you're gonna have a sunnier outlook. <laughs> of course, I am gonna have a sunnier outlook. Um, you know, I I basically think American pop culture, as much as we decry it and are sure that, you know, standards continue to fall as they have been falling for the entirety of the republic, that we sometimes forget how sweet, sunny, and wonderful American pop culture is. And let me offer uh, my favorite example, uh, which is the episode of Veep where they go to Silicon Valley and the precious self-righteousness of the Silicon Valley folks about how they're making the world a better place. And they are ascribing no value to someone who could get nationally elected uh, to run the country. They, their smug sense of superiority is captured so exquisitely, and I keep hearing resonances of it as American tech firms are so excited by the use of big data by the Chinese government and the freedom to experiment with things that uh, result in a million Uyghur in re-education camps, uh, that that the education of our own society about uh, holding the Chinese government to the same standards we hold our own government to, the moral education of American tech firms is going to be a huge part of our eventual success in the competition to shape the international order in a way that continues to be in our interest rather than letting the kinds of international changes that Oriana described the Chinese wanting. And that I would only, I agree with her as far as she goes, but China may not want more than that now, but traditionally great powers' appetites increase as their power increases. So the fact that China might not want overseas bases, might not want international influence, might not want to occupy countries the way the Soviet Union did, may not always hold true. Uh, and our ability in our own fractious, loud, disputatious, wonderful society to rein in the tools of our own creation so that they don't get used for evil is going to be a huge part of our success. Great. Well, thanks to everyone, Corey Shockey, Mike Mazar, Oriana Mastro, and Chris Preble. Great conversation. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.